Hello everyone! So, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. You'll notice it's part 1, which means that part 2 is dropping tomorrow at 12. You'll notice that all of the audio after this message won't sound as clear. That's because I recorded it about a month to a month and a half ago, before I got this brand spanking new mic. It's not going to sound as great, but it should be passable for the time being. And yeah, enjoy! I know it's been a couple of months, I'm really excited to get back into the podcasting game, and let's start with some more Tales from the Bronze Age. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Bronze Age, Episode 2, The Shepherd Kings. Let me start by painting a picture for you. Egypt is under the yoke of foreign invaders who have assumed the title of Pharaoh. During their various reigns, these invaders syncretized their own culture with that of the native Egyptians, both integrating old customs and introducing new technologies and philosophies. If you're at all familiar with ancient history, you might think for a second that I'm talking about the Ptolemaic Greek pharaohs who ruled Egypt until the death of Cleopatra. But I'm not. Remember, this is still the Bronze Age we're talking about. We're a little over 1,100 years before Caesar crosses the Rubicon. The invaders, if they can even really be called that, who are the subject of today's episode, are known to history simply as the Hyksos. Does that name sound at all familiar to you? If so, good. Means you were paying attention to the last episode. Now, when I brought up the Hyksos last episode in the build-up to the Battle of Kadesh, they served as the connecting tissue between the resurgence of internal political stability in Egypt and the origins of the New Kingdom's expansionist interests in the Levant. And my oh my, did they have a rough go of it. Not only could they never assert control over the entirety of Egypt, remember, they only ruled the north, their last days were both bloody and tragic ending in a small-scale genocide perpetrated by the Thebes-based pharaoh Atmos I, as he finished his father's war and expelled the Levantines from his homeland. So that's how their story ended. But it'd be unfair to simply relegate them to the dustbin of history just yet, especially when they so greatly influenced the course of one of the Bronze Age's preeminent superpowers. Let's start from the beginning with the most important question of the hour. What in the world does Hyksos mean? The most straightforward answer to this question is that Hyksos is the Greek translation of an Egyptian title, Hekakasut, which furthermore translates into English as rulers of foreign lands. Now, you might be thinking to yourself two things. First, rulers of foreign lands sounds like a pretty limiting title for an ethnic group. I mean, How many monarchs can you fit into one race? And second, why is this episode titled The Shepherd Kings, then? Do any kings that also manage flocks of sheep show up at any point in this thing? To answer your first question, yes, Rulers of Foreign Lands is a weird title for an ethnic group. And that's because it was never supposed to be a name for an ethnic group. It is almost universally agreed on by historians today that Hekakasut 
was meant to designate the Levantine pharaohs themselves, rather than the non-Egyptian ethnic groups they belonged to. Unfortunately, as with most information about the Bronze Age, the sands of time have been harsh when it comes to our knowledge of the Hyksos. The only historian of antiquity whose work discussing the Hekakasut at some length that has survived is that of the first-century Romano-Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, whose writings on the Hyksos are essentially lifted from the Ptolemaic Egyptian priest Manifel. Have you ever seen what happens to a copy of a copy of a copy, whether it's a photo or a document? How it gradually loses its distinguishing characteristics over time and by a certain point becomes a muddled, garbled mess of ink? Ancient historical chronicling kind of worked the same way. First, both men were living about a thousand years, give or take, from the collapse of Hyksos rule in Egypt, and if you think that either didn't have some sort of propagandistic goal in mind when they wrote their respective pieces on the Hyksos, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Manetho, of course, was continuing the old pharaonic line about how brave Egyptians had beat back the vile, barbaric, uncivilized foreign invaders before subjugating them. And Josephus wanted to prove that the Jewish people had a glorious antiquity. So he identified the Hyksos with the Old Testament's Hebrews. And now, segue time, to answer that second question you were definitely asking yourself, I can say with some confidence that the title of this episode is technically a misnomer. I thought the name Shepherd King sounded super cool, but now I must confess that it's likely a mistranslation on Josephus' part. The Hyksos weren't some sheep-shearing nomad monarchs who lived like Bronze Age Dothraki or anything. Far from it. The only way to properly begin the tale of the Hyksos is to start along the banks of the Nile Delta, at a place we know in modern times as Tel el-Daba, but what the Bronze Age Egyptians knew as the city of Avarice. Around the 18th century BC, immigration into Avarice, especially from nearby Palestine, skyrocketed. And it goes without saying that this resulted in both a major demographic and cultural shift in the region. But this isn't Manetho's quote-unquote invaders of an obscure race battering down the walls of the city while murdering and pillaging anything they could find. A 2020 study, which consisted primarily of chemical analysis of skeletons found at Avarice, noted that many of the initial permanent immigrants were women, which would not at all jive with the idea of a violent conquest spearheaded by, well, men. In fact, based on the evidence provided, the only invasion 18th century Egypt was subjected to was none other than a love invasion with Palestinian women moving into avarice so they could marry native Egyptian rulers. Isn't that sweet? I mean, what could be more wholesome than that? Maybe rapid and chaotic societal collapse? Oh yeah, that's right. We're on the precipice of entering the second intermediate period, which will end with our poor Hekakasuts practically getting flayed alive. But we'll get to that later. Right now, we're focusing on the Hyksos ascendancy. By the dawn of the Second Intermediate Period, Avarice was a truly international city. I don't think we appreciate enough just how globalized the Bronze Age world was. And the remains of Avarice which survive today do a great job of revealing just how interconnected this large world was. Archaeological excavations at Tel el-Daba have discovered Canaanite temples, burials, 
pottery, and weapons in the signature Palestinian style, and, get this, a series of Minoan frescoes. You heard me right. Art from a civilization based literally a thousand miles away in Greece found its way to Avarice. If you want to make a comparison between any modern cosmopolises, it was very much the New York City of its day. Not the capital, at least not yet, of the nation it was in, but certainly at this point its most influential city, both economically and culturally. A metropolis empowered by both a healthily high rate of immigration from foreign lands and an incredibly advantageous position on the Nile and therefore international trade routes. As I alluded to just a short while ago, the Ixos takeover wasn't so much fire and fury as it was slow and steady. We know from historical evidence that Levantine immigrants served as officials for native Egyptian pharaohs in the courts of the Middle Kingdom dynasties which immediately preceded those of the foreign kings prominently assisting the monarchy when it came to matters such as trade and mining operations in the Sinai Peninsula. And this, combined with the influx of West Asian women coming down in droves to marry prominent Egyptian men, meant that the Hyksos already had a particularly powerful foothold in Egypt's intricate political system. There's also ample evidence to suggest that it wasn't an anomaly for foreigners, and I use this term loosely, of course, largely because such modern complexities such as national identity are difficult to wholly apply to the ancient world, to sit upon the Egyptian throne in the decades prior to the start of the Hyksos reign. And this is where the gaps in evidence really start to get annoying. You see, before the rise of the Hyksos 15th dynasty, there were, of course, two competing dynasties that ruled over their respective chunks of Egyptian territory. The 13th dynasty, based in Upper Egypt, which is a bit confusing because technically it's to the south, so on a map it's actually lower than so-called Lower Egypt, which is actually above Upper Egypt on a map, and now I want to smash my head into the table. Where were we again? Oh, yeah. The other dynasty was the 14th dynasty, which ruled in the allegedly Lower Egypt, with their power centered in none other than, you guessed it, Avaris. This wouldn't be a problem in itself if it wasn't for the fact that a lot of the pharaohs, even tenuously associated with the dynasty, were foreigners. And even that wouldn't be a problem if they all belonged to a distinct ethnic group which often found itself in the midst of Egyptian politics. Like, for example, the neighboring Nubians, whose royalty did in fact find itself intertwined with the 14th dynasty. You see, several of the 14th dynasty's potential rulers were Semites, just like the quote-unquote shepherd kings that supposedly overthrew them. Except nowhere in the historical record is the title Hyksos given to them. Did I mention things were about to get real confusing? And so ends part one. I know, that was a huge cliffhanger. I know you're all anxiously waiting to find out what's the answer, why were some called Hicksauce and some not. You'll have to wait until tomorrow at 12, when I'll be telling you some more Tales from the Bronze Age.